Hey, what's up? This is your girl, Diamond Styles, and I am the master chef, cooking you up something succulent and divine. It's your boys out here, and we are serving hot talk and cool iced tea. And I'm Mia Mix, here to set the tone and make sure the mood is right. So come on in and get comfortable. Pull up a chair, have a seat. You can even take your shoes off. Wait, not if your feet is down. <laughs> oh, hell no. Welcome, Welcome to Marsha's Plate. The time has come for you to be the change you want them to be, yeah. No more running around filled with all hypocrisy, yeah. It starts from the inside, it spreads wide, and everything will be alright. Join the conversation. Hashtag Marsha's Plate. Oh, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We want to hear what you guys have to say. You can also help us build community by becoming a patron on patreon.com slash Marsha's Plate. By contributing to this podcast, you help us continue our powerful work to change culture one episode at a time. So, let's get started. Hey, what's up? This is your girl, Diamond. How are you? Um, I've been excited about this conversation for a very very long time because i have been knowing i think i've been knowing renee the longest yeah renee the longest since she had yahoo chat room 2003 yeah. bitch <laughs> um i've been knowing aj since i met him at philly trans health or did i meet you at btac btac first time officially yeah okay so met you at btac we met in a hotel room <laughs> you was in somebody's hotel room where we was talking um, just about shit, just shooting the shit. I think it's the first B-Tech. I think that's what it was. Um, Arnena, I just met- A long list of shit. <laughs> yeah. Marnena, <laughs> I met her at a panel, right? Yep, a panel discussion. A panel discussion. She was in the audience and um, she had asked a question and she was just, just such a brilliant young woman and I had invited her to um, the podcast just to um, talk about desirability and all that kind of stuff. So I told her when we had that conversation that I was going to bring her back at some point. So she's just so brilliant and everything. So my name is Amelia Miller, AJ Scruggs, and Renee Taylor. Thank you for joining me. No problem for having me. Thanks for having me. Oh, okay. So in this conversation, I kind of want to share all of your experiences around HIV. And I want y'all to tell me um, about yourself and when you got into this work. Um, start off with telling us who you are, your pronouns, and then you know, how you got into the work. Hey y'all, I am Renee Taylor. I use um, they and them pronouns. Um, I received my diagnosis at the end of 1999. I was 25 years old. My activism around it was activated by, um, actually I remember the story of someone had mentioned me while I was living in Mississippi. And I was living with my aunt at the time. 
And um, it was a black guy that was married to a white woman. He had stopped me one day. And he was like, um, do you know if you're gay or not? And I was like, no, I don't know. He said, and if your people ever get an opportunity to get married, it's going to be the white ones that's going to enjoy that privilege because the black ones never speak up. So I, I kind of took that to heart a little later on after PST, PSTD, I said, hey, I made promises to myself when I got a diagnosis that I was going to fight like hell. I was going to cuss people out and do whatever I had to do to remain healthy and look like myself. So after that, I, um, I ended up kind of like being on advisory boards and just, it just kept snowballing into something bigger, something bigger and something bigger. So, um, I did a lot of panels and stuff like that. And, um, I didn't disclose all the time. Um, it depended on the energy in the room. If I, I don't know what I want to call the energy. I would say a higher spirit would say, hey, it's okay to talk about it. And if the energy was good in the room, I would go ahead and disclose. If not, I would leave it alone. So that's kind of like how I got started into all of this. Okay, I guess I can go next. <laughs> um, so I am AJ Scrubs. I am 32 years old from Philadelphia. I use he, him, they, them, king pronouns from time to time, depending on the space, if I feel safe. Um, and how I got into this work, believe it or not, um, was right after my diagnosis. I, unfortunately, the, the story that's out there, I was inaccurate in the age because it was actually right before my 30th birthday. So I had been in a relationship with, uh, with a young lady for about four years, and then I was finally a free agent. Um, in my free agency, I did a lot of free agency type things. I, <laughs> I had some familiar encounters and I had some very unfamiliar encounters. And then one of my familiar encounters actually uh, a condom broke. Normally, this is not a problem. I'm like, yo, go, go grab some plan B. I know we cool. This is why we use condoms in the first place. I'm not any like any STDs were good like I can go to the doctor like this is not a problem but the look on his face was trouble um he was like I'm HIV positive and I have not been taking my medication and for somebody who is AFAB who is assigned female at birth you weren't really marketed the tools or marketed the information about PET or PrEP so I'm like, well, you know, it's a death sentence anyway, whatever. If it happens, it happens. Um, of course, I go get tested, and it's negative for nine months. I attend um, somewhere along the line. I was like, okay, well, if this keeps coming back negative, maybe I should start protecting myself. Um, maybe I get on prep maybe about a month, and uh, I go take another test. Um, while I'm actually at a BTEC regional in Maryland. Um, for maybe about three weeks, there's this strange Baltimore number called. I'm like, what the heck is going on? 
so I finally pick up the phone. They give me my STI and STD results, but tell me that I have to call the health department to get my other results. So at this point, I already know what's going on, but I'm panicking. Um, I didn't call back. Something in me said, don't call back. Strange Philly number pops up. Because we're, we're eventually, now we're talking surveillance. Because this is where I'm introduced to the surveillance uh, process. The Philadelphia Department of Health gets in contact with me and say, hey, can we call, you know, come and talk to you? You don't have to come in. We'll come to you. Um, so the young lady, Sarah, I will never forget it. I still have her card. Um, sat down in my living room and told me I was HIV positive, And I'm sitting there in complete denial, like, that's not what you just said. That's not what you just said. So I went on a nasty binge for about two and a half to three weeks where I lost around 50 pounds in three weeks. Not eating, just drinking, kind of like dealing with it and medicating it. Sadly, some of that is actually on Facebook. And I, I keep it there to remind me of where I've come from. It's a constant reminder of like, yo, you made it through this. You didn't die in this process. So after the depression, something snapped. I think Atrium might have reached out to me. Atrium Howard might have reached out to me. Said, hey, bro, I'm finally coming to VTech. I will see you there for the first time. And we had known each other over the internet for maybe about eight years or so. Ashton told his story, and I broke. It was that moment right there where I was like, I got to pick his brain. I can't tell him anything yet. I'm not comfortable saying it out loud yet. But he corralled me without knowing my status at that time. He didn't know that he was doing that. But it was Ashton this entire time that has been my guardian angel through this entire process of getting me started. So once that happened, <laughs> The year he actually ran for Mr. Black Trans International, I told him a month before we left, and he almost ripped into me horribly. He was like, do you know the kind of work that you could have been doing with what you have inside of you? After that, it was off to the races. I remember going to Creative Change that year, then getting accepted into the NMAC. Um, uh, program from there uh, surviving voices happened and other things like I'm now sitting at tables making making <laughs> making very important decisions and helping make important decisions so I got into it just by just by saying I'm positive my story is so much similar to yours AJ um, my name is Marnina Miller and I'm a human rights activist here in the city of Houston Texas um, I actually got into work kind of the similar way by just um, talking about my story. So a little bit about my story. I was diagnosed about seven years ago. Um, and as a black at the time, I was queer, but I was still in this mode where I was still, you know, having relationships with men and things like that. And we're not talked about, we're, we're, talk, we're talked to about HIV, but not as heavily as I have seen since I have worked inside of what I call HIV Inc. or AIDS Inc. 
Um, a lot of our targeted work in AIDS Inc. and HIV Inc. is targeted towards same gender loving men, uh, transgender women, transgender men, but that work isn't poured into black women who are having sex with men. And so around the time of my diagnosis, I had no knowledge of HIV. I just knew that my self-esteem was low. I was a fine boy trying to holler at your girl. And he was so cute. He was all those things that white, um, white supremacy tell us is attractive. He was lighter skin. He had long hair and he had different color eyes. And I was like, oh my God, he wants me as a dark skinned black girl. He wants me as a fat femme. You know, I'm thinking, okay, well, you know, there was no consequences to the actions. I just, you know, you don't want to wear a condom. Okay, let's do it. And that's how I ended up being diagnosed with HIV over seven years ago. Um, and I was so ashamed and afraid and just sitting in all that stigma for so long. And I think the thing that really brought it out was my sister telling me that she was pregnant with my niece. And my sister's five years younger than me. I'm the only, we're the only two siblings in the family. And so for her to tell me, like, I'm pregnant with your niece, I was like, whoa, like, I cannot no longer sit in this shame and guilt. And I think for about maybe three years, I didn't take a pill. I didn't go see a doctor. I didn't, I just was just going to die until my sister told me that important news. And I was like, hey, I want to live for my niece. It's important that I'm on this earth, that she has an aunt, because we know how important aunts are in black and brown communities. And so I was like, I want to be here for her. And so when I decided that I was going to get help, my mom told me to go seek therapy and stuff like that. So I went to a therapist. I started on regiment and got inside of care. And then from there, I was talking to someone in a house that I'm a part of. And she was just like, you don't know about that you can get free medication. You don't know that you can get free health care. And so I went to one of the local clinics here called Legacy. I went and took their class for advocates. I just really wanted friends, y'all. Like, I was not trying to be a part of HIV activism. I didn't care about that stuff. I really wanted to be around folks that were living with HIV, literally no one. And so, one, well, no one that at the time that I knew was living with HIV but me, and I felt like I was all alone. And so once I did get inside of treatment and care and get inside of those advocacy circles, I was like, hold on, this is pretty cool. I like this. And so I started doing advocacy anonymously. I wasn't really saying my name, but I was helping folks behind the scenes. And I was like, how impactful am I being if no one sees my face, if no one puts the name to a story, if it's just this vaccine work? Now, don't get, me, don't get it twisted. Like, vaccine work is very important to the movement, especially for cisgender women living with HIV. But I, think, I thought it needed a face, and I thought it was time that I get out of those shadows. And ever since then, I hit the ground running. Um, I started doing, teaching those classes that I was previously taught during those advocacy beginning advocacy circles called Positive Organizing Project that trains people how to be effective HIV activists here in the city of Houston. I, from then on, I went to Positive Women's Network, which is a national organization for women living with HIV, and we're 30,000 women strong. So I got on the board of directors, became one of their policy fellows. From there, I got with NMAC and became their youth consultant. So I, and they're consulting on all of their grants and all their work that's around youth involvement. Then I went from there and I got on to local work here in Houston with the Mahogany Project and Saving Our Sisters United and all of this other important work that I deem so important to my heart and to my spirit. And I really credit HIV activism for saving my life and for making me um, 
stronger to be able to fight the virus and be able to stay here and play with my niece. So now I got two of them. I'm so in love. Like I posted a picture yesterday on Facebook and a five-year-old sent me a video. She was like, yes, TT, yes, I love that shirt. I love your hair. So it's so important to me that I be here to hear that. And I can only imagine like seven years ago, me sitting there like I want to just die. I'm, I'm glad I stayed here. So that's a little of my story. Hmm. Thank you for sharing. One of the reasons why I, I picked each one of you individually is for all the reasons that y'all kind of um, laid out. I feel like in my mind, when I was growing up in, in Indianapolis, young, in my teens, it felt like everything centered around HIV was just to either gay white men and the black men, they'll be kind of tokenized. It'll be one black man. <laughs> but it just, it didn't seem like it was specifically targeting anybody outside of that MSM, men who have sex with men um, demographic. And so I didn't, and as a trans woman, I didn't have, um, you know, just really education that was really geared towards my personal experience around um, STDs at all, STIs at all. And so as I got older and I started meeting people and I'm like, shit, like I remember there was this research thing um, that happened in the first year that Marshall's Plate was, um, you know, our first year. And they contacted um, Z and I was, and, and, and there was nothing about trans men in the research. And when we, um, and when I told Z, I was like, Z, you need to con contact them again and really lay out why they need to include trans men in this study. And literally, just because we did that and laid out, they literally included trans men and redid their flyer, redid their information and included trans men into their research. I said, because this is a silent, trans men is, is out here fucking. <laughs> they're men and they're out here fucking men. So clearly <laughs> they are in that regards. And then when we talk about trans women, now it's kind of trans women are kind of getting this kind of special treatment around HIV. But previously that wasn't the case. They were, um, you know, they were kind of lumped in with MSN, MS, MSM. They didn't even think about people who don't, you know, fit into the binary. So, you know, Renee, you are a perfect example of that. Um, and then Marnena, definitely, you know, cis black women are never and are rarely talked about it. And it wasn't until maybe like 2004, 2005, when that R.L. King um, book on the download came out. And there was this research that kind of put cis black women on the um, map as the highest of new cases. And then it was like, oh, it's because they're having sex with down low men. And it wasn't even centering the care of, um, of the care of them. It was really centering the men again. Like it's these down low men. How can we figure out these down low men? It wasn't really, nobody really talked about the care of a person who was cisgender, cisgender woman and you know, going through this experience, I didn't see the care evolved in that at all. So when I met you, I was like, oh, say, I, we got to, you know, we got to bring her on in and add to this conversation. You're listening to Houston's own MP Trans 101. Now listen, I know that what is basic trans 101 for me 
to just be the beginning for you. So this is for your basic ass. It was basic <laughs> for me in this life. Could be just the beginning for you. I really want to talk about how important community is. Look, we are social beings and we are not meant to live in isolation. Community is a critical part of us thriving and being the best that we can be, especially for someone who lives on the margin of society, because we're already experiencing many, many disparities and things that lead us into depression and isolation. It is important to build community to help us out. Having a sense of community provides many elements that are critical to mental health. One of those elements is belonging. Community provides a sense of belonging, a group you identify with being a part of, not just conforming to be in that group. There's a difference. The true sense of belonging includes the ability for you to feel you are a part of the community as your true self. There is nothing anything you have to change to be a part of community, but instead you are embraced and appreciated for your unique qualities. Another element is support. Having people you can call on when you need to talk and need to vent and help you with a difficult situation that you might can't get through alone. It may feel insurmountable. Knowing that there are people to support you, can help you feel cared for and safe and can benefit your outlook in life. You need people to have your back in good times and in bad times. That's what building community provides and it's important. Another element is purpose. We all need purpose. In community, people feel different roles. Perhaps you're the friend who enjoys cooking and can be counted on to bring a hot, delicious, you know, soul food meal for us to enjoy while we gather around and love on each other. Or you're the friend who others know that they can call when they need to talk about their struggles. These are roles. These are roles can give you. These roles can give you a sense of purpose. Through bettering other people's lives, having purpose and helping others helps give meaning to life. So let's recap. Belonging, support, purpose. You need those things to thrive and community provides that. So start building community today. If you don't have a trans person in your life as a friend right now, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> you need to get it together. If you are a trans person, reach out to your sisters, reach out to your brothers, reach out to your siblings, because, you know, non-binary people can be trans too. So reach out to them, see how they're doing, become a little bit closer, become friends, be their support system, let them be yours, open up, don't live in isolation. And this is trans. 
Oh my God, I want to thank all of our new patrons this week. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Yay, 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 yay. So not only are you helping to sustain this particular podcast, you know, I also donate to other podcasts. I donate to other organizations. I have my finger on the post of the community and I know a lot of grassroots organizations that are doing great work out here so you're not only helping to sustain us you're helping to sustain other people in a community because I put my money where my mouth is you know that's just the kind of bitch I am community is fuck <laughs> so thank you I really really appreciate you and if you have not become a patron why have you not? You can donate as low as a dollar a month. It doesn't matter. Anything helps. Please. Do I have to play Sir McLaughlin and show you puppies? Like, what do I have to do? Do I have to do resort to what the white people do to get you to give them money? <laughs> All righty. Anyway, thank y'all. And the Patreon and PayPal link is at the bottom. Back to the show. So, Renee, can you tell me what is the difference between you between the time now when you learn um, um between now and back then when you learn your status what, what's the difference in the atmosphere and um you know the culture around hiv back then in 1999 to now in 2020 what is the um difference the difference back then was if <clears throat> you got a diagnosis at the health department their rule was you had to talk to three different people for them to gauge your reaction before you left the building. So what they would do is they would put you in a room with one person and they would give you the results. And they was like, can you turn up names? Then if you still didn't tell them what they wanted to know, they'll take you and put you in another room. And that person would also, do you understand your, your results? And can you turn up some names? And then finally you will get to the person that would talk to you about healthcare and insurance and getting on medication. That's how they did it then. So now what they do. Wait, 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 wait. Is, so when you talk about turning up names, when you talk about turning up names, you mean like give names of like past partners? Yes. Okay. Yes. You they would want you to they would want, want people you to name people you slept with. And um then you get to that person that would talk to you about insurance, talk about Ryan White, and talk about getting you a doctor appointment and getting you um, state-issued insurance, like what, what's here is like 10 care. And then maybe later on, if you get disability or something like that, you'll have Medicare. So now, now is it's streamlined. Now you'll talk to someone, you'll receive counseling, and then they'll put you on a program that's called Rapid Rapid. And Rapid Rapid means the day you get your results is the day you get your medicine. Because a lot of people are lost to care or not engaged in care in that month period of diagnosis and when you go to the doctor. So in places like um, San Francisco and a few others, they have this Rapid Rapid program where the day you get your results is the day you get your medicine and you find out who your doctor is. So right now it's that um, getting you engaged in care early is will help you maintain health and longevity. longevity. They talk to you about nutrition. You may get sent to a nutritionist. Um, 
it's just very fast paced, which should occur and not have you waiting to get engaged into care. I think um, we should name what it's called. It's called the continuum of care, which it really has updated since 1999 um, post heart, which is highly reactive um, retroviral therapies. So that being said, we have um, a lot more one a day routines than what started out. Back in the day, the only one a day was um, Comavir. Comavir, Trizavir, drugs like that where you didn't have to take a whole lot, maybe one other pill. Um, and nowadays, they're going to put you on a one a day, which is uh, very easy to do, mostly at night. Um, and that's the, big, that's the biggest difference is the rapid, rapid start. Just getting people into, quick, into care quicker than it was in the past. What about you, AJ? Because I, you know, when I when we look at shows that are kind of showcasing, um, you know, the HIV experience, particularly back in the day, like in the, like Pose talking about it in the eighties and you know the early nineties, it was it's drastically different than now. What is your take on the differences that you are seeing in advancements and you're seeing in care and how people are actually dealing um, with people who are recently diagnosed? Okay. Um, it's really, really interesting experience for me is that I grew up with somebody who was positive and diagnosed in the house. Actually, my uncle, um, who is the reason I am a chef, um, was diagnosed in 1995 and given three weeks to live. He defied those odds um, and did not pass away until... 2009, two weeks before I started testosterone. <laughs> so, um, and I remember watching him take his cocktail. It was the consistent doctor visits. And then there was this point in time where watching him go in and out of the hospital was a part of like, just a part of what we, what we were used to. Um, and then my experience of like what it's like now, um, prior to my diagnosis, I saw folks who were telling me that they were positive and they, I was like, really? You out here cutting up like this? Oh, okay, cool. <laughs> okay, live your life. Like, and it was no judgment there. Like, um, I did see the stigma still be around, but it wasn't as heavy. And I definitely saw it go from a death sentence to something that you can live with. Um, couldn't tell my mind that when I was diagnosed, though, uh, for those few weeks that I was out of it. But realizing it wasn't a death sentence uh, made it very easy to once I got once <laughs> I was confirmed the day after Trump got elected. So it was a double depressing day. <laughs> it was horrible. But I remember going in, they confirmed. So what we have for you is we have connections to uh, therapy services. Do you feel okay? Do you need to talk some, to somebody? Who's your support system? And I'm like, I'm gagging because I'm like, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Do y'all know how long it took me to find a therapist for hormone therapy? Y'all offering me therapy now? 
<laughs> okay, tell me more. And then as <laughs> as they're telling me what I'm privy to, I didn't learn half of the stuff that I was actually privy to until I uh, was selected for the NMAC program. And that broke down Ryan White for me in a way that I said I had to make sure that this, this is a thing for everybody, um, including my sisters and sisters um, who are living with. Because uh, the director at the time, Linda Scruggs, was like, yeah, we were the highest. And I'm thinking about this time period as a kid, hearing my grandmother in the, sh in the salon that she owned talk about DL men and how that was connected to HIV and AIDS and that mindset in the black community, you know, the beauty salon is the beauty shop and the barber shop, shops are the place where black folks congregate outside of church. So it's like you hear things, but you don't realize how much they affect your mindset. So having that switch kind of go off once I became positive and realized that we have a lot of work to do, but we've come a long way from where we were. Marnena, in your situation, did you feel like, um, you know, when you came into the space of care, did you, did you, was, what was the resistance or kind of, what was the, what, what was being in that, in that space as a cis woman, um, particularly at Legacy? When I go to Legacy, I just see nothing but um, cis gay men a lot of times when I go there. So what, um, what is the difference that you have seen and from the time that you started getting care to now, have you seen any kind of growth or is there still um, some lack of care in that department? Um, I think I could honestly say both. I think that there has been some things that has improved since my diagnosis, but there is so much work to do. When I first got my diagnosis seven years ago, she gave me the paper. I mean, I had to do exactly what Renee said. I had to write down all the people I slept with. Uh, can I think of their names and their numbers? and then I had to go through the process of, okay, well, come back. Your, your test said that you was preliminary positive. Then you come back in a week or two, then we're going to tell you the real deal if you're really positive. So um, it was so much inter intricate work. And by the time I got to the point where my Western blood and all that stuff had said that I was diagnosed with HIV, I literally took all of the paperwork, all the Ryan White stuff she gave me. There was no peer-to-peer -peer counseling, any of that. And I threw it in the trash can. And so I think the difference now is the fact that they now have peer navigators that are usually folks that are living with HIV who are actually inside of Legacy that are talking to you as soon as you get your diagnosis, they're helping you with treatment, giving you some uh, group counseling information, they're talking to you about uh, ways to help your partner get on PrEP and stuff like that. There are so many different programs now that I think have been implemented through the Ryan White Care Act that had been able to kind of streamline healthcare. And being queer, like most of my friends is gay and or trans anyway. So it wasn't a big shocker to me. The one shocker that I found though was my mom. When I took her to Legacy with me, cause I wanted her to see how like cool it was that I can get vision, dental and healthcare all in the same building. She was like, wow, it's a lot of gay men up in here. I'm like, girl, what you think? Like, <laughs> this is a place, this is, you know, a place for people living with HIV in order to get basic health care because a lot of the HIV clinics have now turned into uh, like low income places for folks who need health care. So there's all different types of folks in there, but mainly the one I visit is the one where a lot of cisgender gay men are. But I love me some gay black men. I love me some, some queer men, period. So it wasn't really a, di uh, 
irritant for me or, or kind of weird or any of that. But I think that there needs to be more education around HIV when it comes to cisgender heterosexual folks. Because even when I was doing HIV testing for Legacy and I worked for them for a couple of years, I really got fed up with the fact that we were doing so much targeting on M- young MSM, black and black and brown men, that we were not doing any work in co- any other community. And it was like no other community mattered. And it was because it was the grant funding that was so specific that a lot of the times we're missing so many other populations and we're over plummeting trans black men. We're over plummeting uh, cisgender black men with just the rhetoric about HIV to the point where they become numb about it because you literally have buses outside of their clubs. You got people doing testing inside of the clubs and outside of the clubs. It's, it's become like, oh, HIV, whatever. <laughs> like It's becoming that type of messaging to the point where it doesn't matter or it's not important to them anymore. And so I think constantly hearing about it has become, it's become numb to their ears. And so I think that there has to be so much more work, especially since we know that black women, one in 48 black women will get diagnosed with HIV versus one out of 96 white women. Like that's such a stark difference. And so we have to do more work. We got to do more work around black women. Tell me this. So one of my questions involved like the nonprofit industrial complex that we are living in it seems like what you one of the problems that i've seen is that it started it not started it's been um when it comes to grants and stuff it starts to be a number game so when they talk about um you know where they focus they have to get these certain amount of numbers for their programming and their grant funding to be able to turn it into their funders at the end of the year when they say hey we got this amount of money and this is what we did we have to prove um can you talk a little bit more about how that, um, you know, that sets us up for fl- failure in, you know, maybe, yes, maybe um, um, cis, black, gay men are, you know, a demographic that is strongly impacted by it, but we can't neglect the other groups. Can you talk a little bit more about that? So I think the grant funding usually comes from CDC. And so the grant funding from CDC and from PERSA and from the Ryan White Planning Council, they come into those sectors and they have the demographics where when I was working on my specific program, it was you have to test trans uh, MSMs, you have to trans uh, test, you also have to test MSM, same gender loving black men. And so sometimes it becomes so heavily focused on a certain population and a lot of the times because the grant funding is that way because they're saying the CDC is saying now that one in two MSM black men will get an HIV diagnosis now all of that funding is put towards to stop that portion of transmissions in those communities and so a lot of the times folks will get that money from these different organizations and they'll say hey we need that funding we need that funding and so because that funding is so strict and so limited to their resources they have to focus in on those programming and so i think a lot of times messaging gets lost when they have to do that specific work but one thing i think we can attack is i think we can go about it when we are working on these worldwide planning councils the Ryan White Planning Council has to have 50% of people living with HIV. And if folks don't know about the Ryan White Planning Council, they are a planning body that plans all the HIV funding in specific areas. And so because Houston is such a large metropolitan area, it has a Ryan White Planning Council and that 
they allocate millions of dollars in funding that go to these organizations. And so they can change the rhetoric of the funding and say, hey, we need more money for cisgender uh, women to talk about prevention. We need more funding for uh, trans women to talk about prevention. There are so many different ways that we can, as folks living with HIV or folks that are in decision-making tables, change that type of statistics or that number that's attached to those grants. AJ, in, in your experience, because you said it opened up a lot of doors when you really accepted your diagnosis and you heard about, um, you know, some of the opportunities that you can get for, um, through, you know, Atram, shout out to Atram, he is, um, I had to delete his ass because he was being very extra about Bill Cosby. <laughs> being a rape apologist, so I had to delete him. But that's I still love you, brother. <laughs> but but um, uh, shout out to Atchum for just being somebody's light and beacon. I love that you shared that story. Um, but going into the space of being an activist and you know making you know, so especially as a trans person who don't who doesn't have a lot of opportunities because we at the, you know, we have a little bit of protection now, but previously we didn't have protections at jobs. So sometimes a lot of us get into activist work because this is where we can get jobs and this is where we can get work. Um, have you seen any concerns in this, in your spaces that you have been working in um, around, you know, the nonprofit exploiting things or missing things out just because of money? So I happen to sit on the community advisory board for, uh, the University of Penn's HIV vaccine trials, right? And the way I got onto the community advisory board was I was invited to a dinner because they were, they were super excited to unveil that the next set of studies would include trans women. I sat in this meeting and I was, I was, I was floored for my sisters. I'm like, finally, they're going to have their results reflect their numbers. That means y'all got money. Pause. I didn't hear nothing about anybody AFAB and nothing about trans men. So I asked the question of one of the uh, one of the presenters, and they tap danced around this subject several times. And I asked again. I said, "But what are you doing as a white cis male, sitting at these tables, engaging these people about engaging a population that is clearly under the trans umbrella?" but you're completely forgetting that, um, that we have sex. Well, we're looking for people who have sex with people with penises. Well, as somebody who is AFAB, who has sex with penises proudly, um, how am I not at risk when the community that I'm in, the, the way that I navigate this world puts me at risk because I like, I enjoy sex um, with penis. Like, <laughs> By the end of this, I had an invitation to come to the, to the next cab meeting, and I've been digging in his butt ever since, quite literally. Nope, no pun intended. <laughs> no pun intended. Like, every time, it's literally been me saying, but what about trans men? What about trans men? So the vaccine trials now includes trans men. Um, they just released a COVID study and they were not going to allow people living with HIV to participate. And I went through the roof sitting, <laughs> sitting, eating my McDonald's and I almost choked. I was like, how are you going to ask people like myself who was often forgotten? Ian, this is why I'm here. Remember? And I had to remind him like, my voice is going to go off every time you forget me. 
I'm going to let you know that I'm here. And I know that other organizations in the Philadelphia area heavily saturate the cis gay male population. And I never hear anything about us. Very rarely I see one of us, one of my brothers on, on a prep ad. You know, like they don't even, they don't look in this community at all. And I don't know how when Philadelphia has pretty high numbers for the trans masculine population living with HIV. We know this. There are people who have privately done studies. We're here. Why aren't you engaging this community? So can you explain um, what PrEP is for people who have been living under the rock? Because PrEP particularly, um, you know, like from Gilead, you know, there has one of the demographics that's been, you know, really, really neglected is AFAB people in regards to the trials and studies of um, their medicine. So can you explain PrEP and why that erasure is important? So PrEP is a uh, pre-exposure, it stands for pre-exposure prophylaxis. Um, it is usually, it comes in the form of Truvada. Um, there are also other forms, Discovy and um, a few other uh, brands uh, from Gilead that protect you from, if you are exposed to uh, HIV, you are less likely to contract HIV. Um, and if you are, we're going to go into PEP, which is the post-exposure, if you think you have been exposed, you can go to your provider and within, I believe it's 36 hours, and you can um, ask for PEP, and this will help you also fight your chances of becoming HIV positive. Um, and the biggest part to like the erasure playing, <laughs> playing an issue is I'm sitting here. Um, marketing is very important. Up until maybe about two to three years ago, I didn't see a trans masculine person involved in any campaigns. Um, on the Travada commercial, if I'm not mistaken, maybe, maybe about two years ago, there were two trans people. The only reason I, I was able to recognize them is because they were models. They were trans models that I recognized, Leith Ashley and I believe, I forgot the young lady's name. Um, but seeing them kind of gave me hope a little bit. Um, it means we're moving in the right direction, but Leif doesn't look like me. I'm not muscle-bound. I am a short, round, thick little something. <laughs> and I feel like my brothers are often forgotten because we don't look a certain way. So we're not marketable. So if we don't look cis, if we don't look like the muscle-bound model type, we are often forgotten in how in that fact that we need representation and visibility in these campaigns because if people don't know we exist or people don't think we're having sex or we think we're at risk we're forgotten about and then we get left behind and then you have another aj sitting here saying that well i didn't know that i could protect myself in this way so this is why um I think the work of non-binary people is important. Shaking up this motherfucking um, binary is really one of the keys in dismantling a lot of this stuff. Like what um, AJ was just talking about is um, how even trans folks having to fit into the cis-heteronormative gaze and having to be um, look a certain way to get any kind of attention, that is because we have 
we have, even within the trans community, we have put cis heteronormativity on a pedestal. Cis people put cis heteronormativity on a pedestal because they are the majority, they are in power. And what non-binary people do is shake that up. And so Renee, um, tell us about the work that you do as a non-binary person shakes up the HIV community. You know, I'm in, I'm in Tennessee, so that's like the buckle of the Bible Belt. So um, I was part of our, we have like state HIV, statewide HIV prevention meetings. And I would follow up in those spaces. And I'm like, my pronoun is they, them, and there, and hey, you know, um, and people still mess up because they want to say that it, you know, give them time to learn. But if, if I'm repetitive and you've been in space with me more than once, you should know my pronouns better than I do. Um, I think um, that that's a non-binary people like Martha P. Johnson and people like that have always been around. It's just that they were labeled a certain type of way. Um, not much has changed. The only thing is uh, I'm falling up in space and making people uncomfortable and making them also think about how do we dismantle this colonialism that is part of white, uh, white supremacy around having two genders. That's about the only thing that's happening. I also want to mention that uh, even though I was diagnosed in 1999, I'm asymptomatic. I've never had a symptom. Um, and it's been 20, 21 years. So it's very important that people know that you can be asymptomatic and have this virus for a very long time which I have, and I've never had a symptom. I've never had a pneumonia. I've never had to go to the hospital for anything. Um, a lot of people are like, oh, you're a walking miracle. No, I'm, this is just what it does if you take care of yourself. But a lot of times people don't realize that they weren't expecting us to get old with HIV. So now we're aging with HIV and we having all these comorbidities that intersect with HIV just like these comorbidities intersect with COVID. It makes you, if you catch COVID, it's going to be worse if you have heart disease, HIV, diabetes, high cholesterol, heart disease. If you have any of those and you get COVID, your condition is going to be worse because it's a higher upper respiratory disease. And black and brown populations have these comorbidities that intersect with blackness and brownness, and you're always going to find a, a, a high diagnosis area in black and brown populations where there are a higher black and brown population in a space. And people are not talking about that medical racism that is involved in white supremacy. Absolutely. I, that is, I'm, you brought COVID up. How? For a person, because when you first, when COVID first started to blow up, the first, the first two things that you heard were, it's really, really affecting older people. And then it really, really is serious for people with compromised immune systems. And so how did y'all navigate that space um, with COVID in its early onset? Like, what were y'all thinking? What was going through your mind? Um, Marlena? To be honest, I was terrified. Um, 
me, my partner works outside of the home and uh, she is a healthcare worker. And so me knowing that and me knowing that I'm living with a compromised immune system, black, everything they were saying, I was checking off the list. And um, once I did contract, I contracted COVID about, I'm going to say about two months ago. I was terrified. I was like, look, let me just go write my will because I'm done for. Like, I'm black, I'm overweight, I'm living with a compromised immune system, I got asthma. And so um, I was terrified. And I think a lot of folks in our community, we're trying to find ways in which we're still organizing and doing the work by by also staying, you know, safe, making sure that we're having Zoom calls or making sure that we're staying uh, six feet apart from each other when we're having discussions. So I think it's it's been a way to, it's been a blessing and a way to kind of see the way in which community still works. We're still reaching out to each other and still having conversations that are so important, even like this one, by navigating those systems. And so... It's been a difficult challenge, but especially as somebody that's super gregarious, like I love to talk, I love people. <laughs> and so for me personally, it's been a struggle, but you know, I found ways and I think community has found ways to still be together without compromising our immune systems. What about you, AJ? So when COVID initially hit, I actually had just come back from Las Vegas. And um, once things, once the city started to slowly shut down here, um, working, and I was deemed an essential worker, um, my anxiety started going through the roof. And my partner at the time, um, both of us were are living with, um, we both were working for the shelter system. And it was complete chaos here. Um, like trying to console one another ha with having to leave this house every single day, trying to make sure that we had, you know, a supply of gloves and masks and making sure that folks were, um, were okay. And for me personally, I kind of took on the personal responsibility because I wasn't working as much as she was to ensure that folks were getting the supplies that they needed. Um, so I partnered with uh, the Okra Project to make sure that folks were getting groceries um, and food in their homes before the city shut down. I, I, I started going into hyperdrive because what I know to do for me and my people is to make sure that we are okay. Um, being raised by several strong black women, uh, it kind of like, hey, you got to do what you have to do to make sure that your, your folks are okay. So I was personally delivering food, other essential needs, um, if absolutely necessary, because anxiety is real, you know, um, and we, we had folks that were, had been sitting in the house for maybe a month and a half without the alternative anxiety medicines and things like that. People who are not going to go pick up their HIV meds. So it scared me, but I knew that I take it back. Two months prior, I got really, really sick. So we had it in our head that we had already contracted it long before, <laughs> long before the city actually shut down because actually my son worked at Amazon. So we kind of like put two and two together. He came in here sick. We all got sick and then like really bad for two weeks. Similar, similar like symptoms and all of that. 
So it was nothing like if, if I'm going to get sick, I'm going to get sick. Um, I was just more upset that it said compromised immune systems. And then when you looked at the, the, di the different diagnoses, HIV wasn't on it. Um, and that actually made me very upset because when we think about how <laughs> immune, comprom uh, immune compromised folk, one of the number one immunocompromisations <laughs> is HIV and AIDS. So why, wasn't, why weren't we thought about on that list? Why weren't we a part of the warning? Hey, y'all need to take care of yourselves. Y'all need to make sure that you're du doubling up on your meds. We don't know how, this, how long this is going to last. And I felt like we were getting the short end of the stick with the warnings for us specifically, because again, we weren't on that list of people to worry about unless you kind of like saw through the lines. It's like, well, I'm immunocompromised. Also, it drove me crazy that my job refused to let me stay home when I unrevealed that I was immunocompromised. However, um, my white coworker was given the option. Not one black coworker was given the option. Shady as fuck. <laughs> Shady as fuck. I was thinking about, um, you know, when you said, like, this is a upper repository. I'm like, you know how many people, me growing up, the first thing that they were talking about when they were, like, before they passed away was, like, pneumonia and, you know, those kind of, I'm like, why wouldn't HIV be on that list? Why do you think that was? Why was that, why were they being shady in that regard? Why do you think? I know you're not a medical professional, but why do you think? Um, I actually asked this at one of my CAD meetings, and from what they danced around, they, they love to dance. You would think they were on episode to Soul Train, but um, horribly off rhythm. <laughs> um, I think it was not to scare folks. I honestly feel like they know that they, there is a high population of us actually live and that they would have to be held accountable. I also may think it has something to do with the funding. Because if you have to now give out more medication, and if you know anything about HIV meds, they're expensive. I got that first bill. It said $18,000, and I'm like, what did I get? <laughs> What's in this bottle? Because I was ill. <laughs> what? For two pills? Eighteen grand. So if you have to give eighteen grand per bottle, and you got to give two, so that's four bottles. Who? That's a college education for somebody. That that's a couple of houses for somebody, depending on where you are. So it it's the better way to save money, to avoid panic from a fo uh, from folks that are privy to resources. It's how you save money and cut corners. Yeah, and cutting corners can affect people's actual survival. So that is not ever. Cutting corners around money and health is never the way to go. Marnena talked about, you know, how community has showed up in regards to community care, in regards to, um, you know, just alternative to when you sitting at home and, you know, worried about shit, you know, community can really step up and be um, kind of a lifeline for you. What differences have you seen in, um, you know, in, in, how the community has engaged around this COVID and HIV? Um, I, I, I want to say that back in, um, back in December, my whole house was sick. 
and I went and got tested for COVID. And I had an inconclusive test. One part of the test was positive, the other part of the test was negative. So I had to self-quarantine for like seven days and only eat off of one fork, one spoon, one plate, one cup. And when I go to the bathroom, you know, all of that. So uh, a lot has changed because we have different um, COVID relief funds, just like the one that VTech has. Um, and there was a, quite a few national funds. And I would say this is about the only time that cis people want to be trans people to get funding because we had people faking being trans <laughs> to get COVID funding. Um, and also the people that's coming with panels and everything. And then uh, a lot of the online meetings have um, made it where they come in with the pesos there. You don't have to ask now. They're like, um, we're going to take care of you. This is what we have for you. I'm like, come on. Um, but but much, much is it's, it's actually it's more it's more easier to engage with the community because um, we have like a hyper sense of uh, knowing that we don't have those deeper connections, like that physical connection to people. And um, I feel like that's the thing that made people more conscious and reaching out and saying, hey, how are you doing? Which we normally wouldn't call and say to each other, how are you doing? You know, even on a physical basis, on a daily basis. But now it's more relevant to say hey to somebody and see how they're doing. I think that's real. I think we what studies have shown in the mental health professional uh, arena is that community is one of the um, key things in in survival around any kind of disparity, community building and taking care of your people. I want to know um, how has this affected you all, not COVID, but previous to this COVID shit, because we all in the house not doing shit. <laughs> but I want to talk about dating and I want to talk about how you were engaging in your romantic, how, how being positive has changed how you engage in your romantic life. Um, Pre-COVID, because I know, you know, we might, it might, that might be something different. But how is your dating and disclosing and especially particularly trans people on, on the on on the panel? How is all of these how has this played out in your um, personal life, in your romantic personal life? I don't know uh if y'all notice that I tend to joke about seeking Frodo, which is a, a little joke that I like short men. So um actually I've been celibate most of my adult life. Um, after my diagnosis um, from 25 to 31, I had no sexual experience. And then after, after 31. Bless you, um, bless your heart. <laughs> I, um, it take, uh, for me to disclose in a dating situation, it's like, it takes a lot of my energy to disclose and then have a person that's not understanding and they're like, oh, you trying to give me this and that, that, woo, woo. And I'm like, I'm giving you a choice I didn't have. Um, but I have mostly been celibate. So right now I'm, I'm in a 10-year 
uh, it's been about 10 years since the last encounter. So I haven't, I, I consider myself um, asexual on the demisexual spectrum. I don't know if y'all understand that. Yes, okay. we do. You know, some people don't. I know. Yeah, so I'm, I'm on that. Actually, just, to, just to give a shout out, it's, um, Tiwi Queen and Jay does a great episode about demisexual for the people who listen to podcasts. Um, and um, Inner Hole Uprising does a great um, episode about demisexual if you need explanation of that. So go check it out. I'll put the links in the bottom. Go ahead. Um, that's about it. I've been, I just been, I've been celibate and I, I'm a Pisces, so I kind of like enjoy my um, solitude. And I think I'd probably be mean to somebody if I, if I had somebody laying next to me too much because I'm too used to having my own stuff. So, um, yeah, I'm celibate. <laughs> What about you, AJ? Dating for me has not been difficult. Um, after initially disclosing to a trans masculine partner, I think that that's been the hardest. Like it, because I like folks um, and people in general. I don't necessarily have a specific preference when it comes to human be- human beings I'm attracted to. Um, my worst experience has been with trans men because they still navigate and operate in a certain mental space of ignorance. Um, I feel like a lot of them feel like that they still operate and navigate in this space of, well, we're not really at risk. So like, if you become the risk factor, you're now like this, stay over there, I can't really deal with you because you got that, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) You got that house in Virginia and, but it has opened up a plethora of conversation with folks that I had never known that was actually attracted to me because they would then share that they are, they are two living with. Um, and it's a lot more folks than I actually thought. And the conversations, I think, are more authentic when you actually kind of share that. Um, I think the experience of disclosing it has become extremely easy. I just send them the surviving voices link at this point. <laughs> um, and because you're going to learn about the stuff that I do, because I'm very vocal at this point. Like, and if you want to deal with me, you're going to know the work that I do. Um, and there's a lot of education that you can learn. From, like, yeah, it's, it's been rather easy. And it's actually a lot easier than just dating trans and trying to navigate a stealth lifestyle and trying to date. I, <laughs> I think living with has been easier than living is, stealth is, and dating. That is the ghetto. <laughs> that is ghetto. No, I don't, <laughs> like I don't reside there. <laughs> I live just on the outskirts. Um, but yeah, it's been it's been an interesting experience because the amount of education from the people that I'm learning from, like the person that I'm currently um engaging is a sex educator so when it comes to like when it came to my status it didn't matter at all it actually opened up a lot of stuff um because there i'm learning safer ways to engage a side of me that i don't necessarily didn't want to necessarily engage with and it's just a freedom for real for me 
Let me find out AJ over there, the AFAB uh, partnership with me, because the he is the same way I am. Like when it comes to disclosing, I find a link on YouTube where I'm talking about HIV, and I'm like, here, uh, before you get to know me, here it is. Like this is what it is. That's what it is, and that's what it's gonna be. And so I'm like AJ. It has released like this sexual freak in me that I did not know I had. It released this bad bitch energy that I did not know existed with inside of me. Like this freak. I want to hang from the chandeliers. Like it has just being diagnosed with HIV has gave me a liberty that has been so freeing. Like it allowed me to reintroduce myself to me. And um, I thank like queer black men for that. I thank trans women for that. Like it has really opened up so many doors for me. Um, even professionally, HIV has opened up so many doors. And I won't say that I would love, to, I'm glad that it happened, but I'm now seeing the blessing in the burden. And so um, I, have, I think too, like even the whole sexual side of me, even me deciding, you know, one time I had a threesome with a, uh, with a bisexual man and a queer woman, like you know, it's just it's just been real free and a real freak nasty over here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> live for that. That yeah. woke the inner hoe in me up. I'm sorry. <laughs> you said what, AJ? I woke up the inner hoe in me. Baby, okay. live it, live it. <laughs> I know that may be so for a lot of people, but I'm just really, really sex positive and. You know what? HIV has done that for me. The education piece, um, the especially when U equals U came out, undetectable equals untransmittable. So folks living with HIV, if they are taking their medicine as prescribed and they're seeing their doctor's appointments, they can now become undetectable, which means you can't detect it in our blood and we can't transmit it to a partner. And so once I tell folks, hey, it's on and pop it. But I do think I'm going to put on my activist hat for a minute. Um, outside of all the freaky, nasty stuff I love to do, uh, there is a piece of me that is extremely afraid, especially for a lot of black trans women, even those who engage in sex work, because when they are diagnosed, uh, and especially when they tell their partners a lot of times, there's a lot of violence. Even with a lot of cisgender women, there's so much violence that happens among black bodies when it comes to HIV diagnosis and HIV disclosure because in those worlds people are still not educated especially black men they're not educated about HIV a lot when they're heteronormative they're not told about like undetectable equals untransmittable they're not told to talk to about those different things that we all know about and so I think Sometimes we're doing a disservice when we don't talk about you equals you and how we can't transmit. But other than that, I've been living my best life. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. I think that's so beautiful. And uh, for me, it why hearing these kind of stories is important is because, like AJ said earlier, it is something about seeing somebody live their best life um, and seeing them happy, see them continuing on, seeing them um, exploring and in an open and honest way, seeing that let you know, because people can say, oh, this is not a death sentence. People can say, you know, that can come out of people's mouth. But, but when you think about it as somebody who grew up in, you know, through the AIDS epidemic and, 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 and what HIV and AIDS um, represented, in my life as a four, I'm a, I'll be 40 next year, as an almost 40 year old, 
um, you know, it was it was a death sentence in my mind. So when I see people happy and living and experience it in a whole different way than I remember people experienced it when I was younger, it's a whole different thing. It just is a beacon of light. It's a beacon of hope. It's a beacon of, um, I know that if I had to ever navigate that space, I will be okay. It will be all right. And that's really what I, what I want to get across in, in, in this particular episode, because I want people to know is that if you are new to this, there are people who've been, been in the game and they're showing you how they, you can live and be happy and be joyous and get past what um, Renee was talking about, that beginning slump that may happen once you find out or once you get, um, you know, you get your status. Your status is important so you can live this full and abundant and joyous life. So I want to thank y'all for sharing your experiences. I want to thank y'all for being in my life. I want to thank y'all for, um, you know, just y'all brilliance. Y'all, I have talked to y'all individually because I've been knowing y'all for years, but y'all have really, really enriched when, when, when it comes, when I hear you, when I see you on live, AJ, when I, when I talk to you, Marnena, when I see you talking, Renee, it just gives me an education that um, I, even somebody who grew up in it, that this new era is, is just give me education of things I just didn't know, experiences I didn't know. Um, and it's an education that I really appreciate and value. And that's why I wanted to always shine a light on y'all when we have these kind of conversations, because I think y'all are important. I think y'all are brilliant. And I want to thank y'all for being on the show. Thank you for having this conversation. Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate you so much. I appreciate you too. <laughs> and I love you. Mwah. <laughs> Mm. So tell the folks where they can find you. Starting with you, Renee, tell them where they can find you on social media. Um, they can find me at Renee Taylor on on Facebook and on Twitter. I think it's uh, eclectic slash Pisces. Um, but more than likely, uh, Facebook would be the greatest. And um, yeah, that's about it. As for me, you can find me at Marnina the Queen on Instagram and IG. Also, MarninaTheQueen.com. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at the Lavender Bandit, D A L A V D A R Bandit. Um, also, you can find me AJ Scruggs on Facebook, and also Be Go Live. I host panel discussions every Tuesday night from seven to nine p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Sometimes they go over most every week has gone over um on beagle live discussing different things from politics to current events to just different just living through this pandemic uh so yeah and i get paid to be a host finally finally paid to go live y'all <laughs> so i'm gonna put all of their links down in the bottom make sure you check it out i really appreciate them for joining us show them love um I'm going to put the cash apps down there. So make sure y'all show them love and the coins. <laughs> and thank y'all for listening. Have a wonderful day. Well, that's it. Thank you for coming and getting a taste of Marsha's Plate. You can listen to us on iTunes and SoundCloud. Make sure you leave a review because we really need those five stars, y'all. And go like our Facebook page and leave some comments. We will be posting exclusive content every Thursday. So you definitely don't want to miss out. You can also follow us on Twitter and any other social media site at Marsha's Plate. If you'd like to donate or advertise with us, hit us up at diamondstyles at gmail.com. 
That's diamondstylz at gmail.com. And that's it for us, y'all. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. You going to say bye, Mia? Oh, bye, (laughs) (laughs) y'all. Every little thing's going to be all right.